Hello and thanks for joining me on This Week, a new podcast offering news, analysis and interviews covering the whole of British politics, be it poll or politician. We've got a brilliant field of guests from Westminster and beyond getting to the heart of this week's issues. Before we start, here's your summary. Protests have continued in the US after the alleged murder of black man George Floyd in police custody. Policeman Derek Chauvin is reported to have knelt on Floyd's neck for seven minutes, depriving him of sufficient oxygen to live. Riots have occurred in the south of the US, as well as demonstrations happening here in the UK. All four officers involved in Floyd's arrest have been arrested themselves, with Chauvin being charged with second-degree murder. The UK lockdown continues to be lifted. On the 1st of June, car showrooms and outdoor markets reopened, as well as primary schools reopening their doors to years 1, 2 and 6. Secondary schools are set to follow suit and partially reopen for year 10 and year 12 on the 15th. Boris Johnson also announced this week that 3 million people from Hong Kong could get refuge here in Britain if China imposes a planned new security law which many fear will hinder the freedoms of Hong Kong residents. Mr Johnson's decision has been met with both praise and criticism, with some saying the influx of people would overwhelm the UK. And a huge development in the case of missing child Madeleine McCann, as police announced a 43-year-old German paedophile called Christopher as a new suspect. It's reported that he lived in the area in which the McCanns were staying, and may have even boasted to friends about snatching the toddler. Police do say that Madeleine is assumed dead. Before we start, if the show picks up even a little traction, there will inevitably be some on Twitter and social media that will be unhappy with it. They'll be accusing me of being one-sided and biased during my interviews, some criticising my choice of guests. As a journalist, my job is to inform with the facts, whether they swing the argument in my favour or not. In an interview, when someone has an opinion, I'll put the alternative view to them and question them on why theirs is better than that. My main goal as an interviewer, to make sure the listener has no idea about where I stand on the topic at hand. My journalism will be impartial throughout. Just thought I'd get that out of the way. Right, now I'm sure many of our listeners will remember the Social Democratic Party of 1981. The party which was formed as a moderate spin-off from the Labour. That party merged with the Liberals to become today's Liberal Democrats. However, some decided to continue the SDP. They weren't content with this merger. They've never got that much electoral attention, just winning a few council seats up and down the country, but now the party believes it can resurge and become a major force yet again. Joining me is former MEP and SDP Brexit spokesperson Patrick O'Flynn. Patrick, great to have you with us. Hi, Harry. Patrick O'Flynn, the current image of the SDP is somewhat different to back in the day. For example, now you espouse more Eurosceptic and socially conservative policies. Do you think this could attract new voters? Uh, well, I certainly think the message is very appealing uh, and a lot of our policies have a huge amount of public support. Uh, for instance, we believe uh, in kind of we believe in a, a fair society, uh, but harnessing people's loyalties to their own nation states rather than trying to run it from uh, a supranational uh, situation in Brussels and we think that collective identity is much stronger uh, at the national level and, and that's where it should be uh, best harnessed if we want to uh, kind of put the we not just the me back into society so I think the idea that fundamental idea is 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 very popular and it doesn't necessarily have to be a right-wing idea uh, but actually getting 
actual traction depends on getting coverage and profile uh, and that is where the sort of relaunched uh, party has uh, has stumbled so far now as much as i can understand the appetite and feeling for a new party uh if nigel farage for example decided to go on with his reform party and run on a platform of changing politics for good surely your party would be a bit irrelevant Uh, no, I don't think it'll be irrelevant. Um, and Nigel, perhaps, uh, you know, I worked with him uh, before, but uh, he, he certainly got um, the knack of communicating to a mass audience. He's got massive profile and potentially uh, a lot of financial uh, backers too. Um, and that's fine. And, you know, he'll raise many valuable issues. And I'm sure, you know, if he launches the Reform Party, it, it, it will have a certain amount of momentum quite quickly. But the thing with Nigel is he does believe, uh, you know, in cutting back the state, cutting public services, privatising things, um, you know. So he's definitely coming from uh, right of centre, uh, potentially even wanting to support uh, more private provision in healthcare and these are things that I think the mass of uh, British voters including Brexit voters don't really agree with so Nigel always hits a bit of a ceiling because some of his views are you know to put it simply too right wing in order to gain mass traction and in a first past the post political system uh, that's what stops uh, parties that Nigel is involved with uh, getting parliamentary representation. <laughs> Well, he got off quite easily there. You were quite nice about him. Uh, you've previously described him as snarling, thin-skinned and aggressive. And just on that point... Well, just... I think that, that, that was just... That was just, if I could say, during a particularly uh, fraught moment when we were all uh, exhausted uh, in the wake of the 2015 general election. Uh, and Nigel uh, kind of stood down and, and then unstood down in a way that uh, I thought wasn't really fair on some colleagues uh, in UKIP at the time, such as Suzanne Evans and Paul Nuttall. So I wasn't very happy with him at the time. Well, on that point, you were in UKIP previously. Um, you, were, you drove its economic policy to one of a centre-left view. How is your party any different to UKIP in 2015? You know, centre-left economics, centre-right social issues. How are you different? Well, um, I think you've got a fair point in terms of the 2015 uh, manifesto that UKIP stood on. But the thing about UKIP was, uh, although, you know, myself and Suzanne Evans and one or two others did uh, succeed in, in pushing a different policy blend, the party's image and profile and some of its very senior supporters were kind of dyed in the wool, Thatcherite, libertarians, uh, shrink the state, think ta all taxation is theft and things like that. Um, there, you know, there were uh, economically, uh, you know, the, the preponderance of senior members were quite hostile to that social democratic uh, uh, um, outlook. And um, as a result, I'm not really sure that UKIP shifted uh, its image from being a hard right Thatcherite party. Now, one of the more prominent members of your party is the Spectator's Rod Little. Uh, he wrote a column in 2019 saying the election should be held on a day where Muslims are forbidden to do anything on pain of hell. I get that this was meant to be satirical, but this isn't the only controversy he's had. Do you really want this man associated with your party? 
Oh, yes, absolutely. I think uh, Rod Liddell is a fantastic satirist, humorous writer. I think in, in that obviously humorous column that he wrote, he also speculated about uh, holding the voting at times where most of the student population would be in bed and, and miss mm. the election. I mean, it was fairly obvious uh, that he was sort of taking the rise rather than seriously proposing the disenfranchisement of uh, students or Muslim uh, citizens. So, I, you know, I think uh, Rod, who comes from a Labour Party background, uh, believes that the biggest discrimination in Britain is is by social class rather than mm. any other particular identity group. I think uh, a lot of people agree with him about that. And it's good to have people who aren't woke but who aren't of the, the kind of hardline Thatcherite shrink the state uh, view either. And I think that reflects a huge sway of the British public opinion. Well, now, now let's have a look at a few of your policies. And the first, a new one, actually, on the pandemic. Uh, what's your plan to reduce the coronavirus debt? Well, that, that's been worked up by the party leader, William Clouston, and uh, a panel. I, I am kind of consulted about that. But the basic concept is that we shouldn't lurch into another round of austerity uh, based on something that, that didn't arise as any uh, because of any underlying weakness in the British economy or any recklessness. And we've been through 10 years of austerity. So what we need to do uh, as, as regards the disaster uh, of COVID-19 is um, stretch the repayment of the costs over a very long time, perhaps by issuing bonds with 60-year maturity rates, have a sort of sunk cost that, that is, is not seen as, as an integral part of the overall national balance sheet. So it doesn't produce another lurch into uh, chasing our tail in a downwards direction for the whole economy. Well, I think the question is, how much is that going to be? I mean, the BBC reported that it could be as much as £298 billion just for the financial year from April 2020 to April 2021. Uh, how are you going to pay for it? Well, I think that that's right. It could be getting on for £300 billion hit uh, to the, um, the national uh, accounts uh, from... Uh, all the action and all the policies that have been taken to prevent an economic cardiac arrest, and I support those policies. Uh, any government, including the, the the one that's in power at the moment, is going to have to confront the costs of how you handle that uh, without knocking the stuffing out of the economy with another protracted round of austerity. Uh, you know, government borrowing costs at the moment are very low. In fact, uh, there was recently a bonds issue where I think... Uh, they were slightly negative interest rate. People were, were, were um, paying the government almost to, to lend it money. Uh, so uh, what I'm proposing, what the SDP general approach would be, is, is a separate, very large bonds issue uh, over a, a very long maturity. So, so if you're paying back costs over 60 years, it becomes a manageable amount of money. Uh, and the, the sense of panic around it and that, that perhaps we need to kind of we need to wipe out all that um, debt in the short term, which would induce uh, a deflationary spiral. Uh, that panic could be set aside. Uh, and, you know, right away that the Second World War debt has only just been, been paid off. You know, it just becomes uh, a decreasing, gradually decreasing sum of money uh, each year that, that flows back to the people who lent the government money for a very long time. 
Okay, well, now let's come to your defence policy. Um, And one point I'm particularly interested in is this, and I'm quoting now from your manifesto. Learn from the mistakes of recent decades in relation to UK involvement in foreign wars. Future decisions on defence spending will focus primarily on the defence of British territory. By this, would it be incorrect to say that the SDP was somewhat of an anti-interventionist party? Well, I think what most political parties and voters have learnt over the last 20 years uh, is that you can't impose democracy down the barrel of a gun on other countries and it's a gross simplification that the sort of the neocon tendency around the turn of the century had that you know everyone wants to democracy you export democracy by toppling uh, existing undemocratic regimes you know, everything turns out hunky-dory and, and you get mature multi-party democracies. And that clearly uh, doesn't work because it, it was seen as imperialism. It didn't really uh, reflect the, the kind of group loyalties that existed in, in other countries. Um, and if you look at particularly Iraq, obviously um, the net effect of toppling that regime uh, hasn't been generally positive and I would argue perhaps in the case of Libya as well uh, it hasn't been uh, overall positive. Uh, you could say in uh, relation to Afghanistan and the Taliban and hosting Al-Qaeda that there was a very specific quarters belli that did justify uh, and necessitate a, a, a Western alliance to um, to invade and topple that regime. Yeah, I think we'd be arguing that the that sort of the hurdle, the test uh, to justify a foreign intervention should be a lot higher uh, than it was when, for instance, Tony Blair was prime minister. Well, I mean, obviously a bit of a hypothetical at the minute, but if you did get into government and you had a Trump-esque president in the US, how would you deal with that and involvement in foreign wars? Well, you know, uh, we'd still be in a variety of multilateral organisations, uh, NATO being the bedrock of uh, uh, of our defence. Um, you know, going going back in history, we've had times, for instance, one thinks of Harold Wilson not just deciding not to lend British military assets and, and personnel. Uh, to the American uh, campaign in Vietnam. Now, we sustained a close and friendly relationship with the United States that, that lasts beyond any individual uh, president, but he, he did show, you know, sometimes we can sit things out and that would be uh, the wisest thing to do, I think, in, in these sort of expeditionary uh, wars. Now, electoral reform, one of your main selling points. Uh, what are your policies? What do you want to reform? Well, in general, we want a proportional uh, electoral system. So a number of um, MPs reflects the share of the vote. And so no vote uh, is known in advance to be wasted. I think you saw from the turnout in the 2016 referendum uh, when people were energised by thinking every vote mattered. Um, there's far too many places across uh, the United Kingdom where uh, the, the MP, the identity of the MP is determined in advance by affiliation either the, to the Conservative Party uh, or the Labour Party and probably only, only about 150 seats out of 650 odd uh, are competitive, you know, and that breeds lazy MPs, complacent MPs who don't have to really be close to the views of their constituents um, and it, it, it's bad for voter choice. Um, 
you know, it's an ongoing kind of um, debate in the party about what precise form of PR we throw our weight behind. I've always favoured um, the single transferable vote in multi-member constituencies because I think uh, the thing that gets said that you must have one MP per constituency uh, and there's something special about that relationship. I think that's mm. a, a producer vested interest argument that it's all fine to give each MP a monopoly. But if you have mm. four or five MPs competing to help people and they could choose the one uh, they felt uh, most comfortable with, that's better for the for the electors, albeit, uh, you know, puts the actual MPs or more on the metal, which I think would be a good mm. thing. Is it not a valid point to make, though? Many first-past-the-post campaigners make this point that PR often leads to unstable coalition governments, which in this country might just not be a good thing. Well, I think you've, you've seen until the December election that first-past-the-post was leading to uh, fairly unstable coalition uh, governments, albeit with Theresa May, it wasn't a formal coalition, it was a confidence and supply with the, uh, the Democratic Unionists. Uh, but, you know, uh, as I say, the, the previous few elections, you go back to um, 2010 and the coalition between the Conservatives and the Lib Dems, uh, 2015, a tiny wafer thin Conservative majority 2017 hung Parliament. Uh, is first, first past the post reliably producing strong governments anyway? I, I, I think you, you can certainly make a case that the 2019 general election uh, did, but there's no guarantee stretching into the future uh, that that will be the case more often than not. Uh, just a quick few questions to finish off. What are your views on the riots and protests happening here and, of course, in the US? Well, um, taking the US first, I mean, there's been appalling violence. Um, I think uh, those of a progressive uh, outlook are making a huge mistake if they become associated with if they become associated with uh, violence. And in the end, most citizens will even get behind a president as hardline and sometimes unpleasant as Donald Trump, uh, rather than uh, support a Democrat party that's perceived being soft on law and order. Um, in this country, um, I think our policing is in a very different situation. Uh, and, you know, I just, I'm very wary, particularly of white middle-class liberals whose message to the black community is that they have no agency, no power to improve their lives, uh, and that Britain is set up as a hardline racist society. I don't believe any of those things are true. Uh, and we must try and encourage positive ways for young people of all different ethnic backgrounds to, re to realise their potential. Uh, just one thing interesting about your view on the US. Um, this is your personal view, obviously, not your party's, but Trump versus Biden. If you had a vote, who would you pick? Trump versus Biden? Yeah. Well, I'm glad to say I, I, I haven't got a vote. Um, I think I'd, I'd have to sit that one out. I don't think Joe Biden is remotely an impressive uh, political specimen. Uh, and, you know, we all know about the immaturity and egotism of Donald Trump. Well, been really interesting to hear from you. Thanks for joining us and setting out your party's stance. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. The Lib Dems have been fairly quiet since their disappointing general election result in 2019, and who can blame them? At the start of that election cycle, Jo Swinson was putting herself out there as a candidate for Prime Minister. Now she's not even an MP. 
One person who did hold their seat is the MP for Edinburgh West, Christine Jardine. Uh, Christine, great to have you with us. Hope you will. I'm very well, thank you. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, let's start chronologically. It's been a while now, but what would you say is the main reason why you lost the last election? Oh, um, that's, you know, that's if I could answer that question and had been able to do it. Um, I think it was the wrong general election at the wrong time for us. I think um, the situation in the country changed or was changing. Um, and, you know, I think we got a couple of things wrong. Um, and, you know, um, I think the timing of the election wasn't great for us. Um, I think uh, possibly uh, that didn't help. And I think um, we didn't explain um, particularly clearly, I don't think, or as clearly as we should have done, um, that we still wanted a referendum on Brexit. I think people thought we had um, abandoned that in favour of revolt. No, we always thought that um, we'd spent three years campaigning for um, a referendum and that was still what we believed. But at the end of the day, we wanted into plank of the campaign was that we did not think it was the right thing for the country to um to leave the European Union. We fought tooth and nail to stay in and at the end of the day it you know it didn't work. Um and I think a big part of it was that um the country became um a bit kind of torn between those who di oh, didn't want, um, I don't think the Labour Party was um, an attractive offer and people were concerned that um, they might win if they didn't vote Conservative. There are a whole lot of things that always come into the general election. Very difficult to put your finger on one thing and say, that's why we lost. I think perhaps we weren't clear about our messages. I think perhaps we got one or two things wrong and I think the mood of the country changed. And there was also things about the other two parties, over which we have absolutely no control whatsoever. Well, now the Brexit has been, in inverted commas, done, obviously. The yeah. transition period still yeah. has to end. Next month, really important for that. Where is the place for the Lib Dems in British politics? Um, the place for the Lib Dems is where it's always been, which is on the side of the public. Um, that we are, that we will stay. Our values, um, we want to build a, a better society, a fairer society. I mean, look at the moment. Um, we are championing a lot of things in the domestic abuse bill, like we want a different definition, um, which includes children as um, survivors of domestic abuse. If they've witnessed it in their homes, we, you know, we want, um, we want uh, more support for migrant women who find themselves uh, suffering domestic abuse. During this crisis, um, there's been a huge increase in domestic abuse and we have been calling for extra support, extra funding, constantly pressing the government, constantly pressing on the, the hugely disproportionate number of people from uh, BAME communities who have been victims of COVID-19 and to do something about identify where the inequalities are in our system that is allowing this to happen and, you know, do something to eliminate those inequalities. That's where we are, that's where we will always be, on the side of ordinary people putting forward the arguments that they want to hear. Well, I take it you're not trying to get to a certain ideo ideology. 
because what I found striking in the election was you had people like Sam Jima, very liberal on economics, people like Luciana Berger, who are former Labour MPs. Now, given they're no longer MPs, but these are the kind of two people you attracted, how are you going to bridge that gap? I think that shows you that actually we did bridge the gap. There was a survey, it was two years ago now, um, that we did when we uh, when Vince launched his reform of, of the party, his reforms of voting, etc., the leadership. Um, and that survey said that I think it was about three quarters of the British public actually agree with our basic principle and the things we stand for, the things we want to change. And perhaps at times, um, you know, we get squeezed out of the picture in the election, but basically. Our main message is something that appeals to the majority of people. They agree with us. And I think that's what you saw when you saw people like Sam Jima and uh, Luciana Berger joining us. From, you know, people oh, well, they, they come from very different opinions, but they've got one thing in common, which is that they want what is best for the British public. We want to build a better so they didn't join you just because of Brexit? And to... No, no. Well, if that had been the case, um, the, you know, they would have left, but, you know, I was speaking to Luciana just the other night on um, a party call. Um, uh, Antoinette Sandbach is still with us, Peter Wall, and all these people. It wasn't a case of just joining us because of Brexit. They recognised, as we all did at the time, and it's been kind of drowned out a wee bit by um, this terrible crisis that we have at the moment over COVID-19. That's what we have all rightly been focusing on and on Brexit. But there was something, and still something, critically wrong with British politics that um, we have two parties who um, I don't think appeal anymore to uh, different ideologies. Or and you know, you saw the huge swing in parts of the north of England to Conservative Party from the Labour Party. Now, that's not an ideological thing. That's, you know, that is something different. We, we saw people who felt completely disenfranchised. Um, and I think we have to mend that in British politics. And the road that we were starting to go down um, with Joe of bringing people in, um, of appealing to um, uh, people in this country who want, who basically want to see a better country, a fairer country, that's where we should still be going. And I think the need for change in British politics not only is still there, it's never been greater. Well, however much people may agree or disagree with your views, you can't hide away from the fact you're doing abysmally in the polls. You're at about 8%. This time last year, you were winning polls. You were topping them. How are you going to get your message out there? Um, by talking to people. By get, you know, by talking to people about the things that matter to them. We have always been a grassroots party. Uh, we work in our communities and for our communities, and that is how we get out to people what we are all about. Um, the other parties might like the big stage and the, the glitzy um, PR and all the rest of it. Yep, um, there is a place for that. Um, but for me, politics is about people, and that is where it should all stay from um, what it's all about is helping people. You can only do that if you're a grassroots movement who understands what the people you represent want. Um, and that is where we build up from again. And we will so. I mean, we haven't really, we haven't lost ground on the last general election, really. I mean, we had 12 MPs the last time. We've got 11 this time. Uh, we took a seat from the SNP in Scotland. You know, we, 
we will do what we have always Our done. Our big fraction of voters who lost in, in 2015, especially in the South West, was uh, Brexit supporters. They supported you because you were one of the first parties to offer a referendum, even if you did go on to support Remain. How are you going to win their trust back? Uh-huh. No, 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 no. Um, what we called for, if you remember, was if it's going to be a big change in any of the treaties. Um, ceding more powers to to um, Brussels or you know making Brussels more powerful. That was a different thing. Um, we're going to win the trust back by working in our communities, which is what I said is is what we've always done. Um, I think the time for arguing about Brexit is over. I think we. Um, I would like to see the government. One last thing they need to do is make sure that we get a you know the best deal that we can. It won't be as good as being a member, but we have to get the best deal that we can. And I think they need more time. I think COVID-19 has made it incredibly difficult um, at the moment. And I think they should recognise that and ask for an extension before it's too late at the end of the month. Or we're leaving, or we'll put a deal. And well, yeah, on the topic of the transition period, uh, you think it should be extended? Oh, yes. Um, Not uh, for any other reason than I think because of what has happened this year with COVID-19, um, and because so much of the government's attention and the civil service attention is rightly on the health of the country and getting the economy back on its feet after this, to which getting a good deal from Brussels is could be crucial. We really need that good deal from Brussels. So I think that they should take they should take the opportunity, say to Brussels, we need an extension. We need to be realistic, not. I mean, Brussels has got no interest in whether or not um, it's not for them now. We have left, but it is for us to do or for our government to do what is best for this country. And what's best for this country is to have the time to negotiate a good deal um, in the current circumstances. Now, fresh start coming up for your party. Leadership election, uh, Vera Hophouse, Leila Moore and mm-hmm. Ed Davey. I um, actually watched Ed Davey's campaign launch video the other day. Really moving. Mm-hmm. I had no idea of the hardships he'd had to endure. Is it too early yeah. to tell me who you'll be supporting? I was at the end of the video saying who I'd be supporting as leader. Um. Oh, yeah, sorry, I, didn't watch it in its ah, entirety. So my my see, mistake. Yeah, I'm uh, at the end of the the um, video. I said I'd support it. Yeah, all the reasons you've just um, you've just articulated. Ed um, Ed's life is um, a story of someone who knows what it is to have challenges and to take them on. And I think that is what people want and need in the politicians they need us they don't want people who've lived um sheltered lives or privileged lives that doesn't reflect what the vast majority of people in this country um experience every day in different ways um i certainly don't come from a privileged background i come from a working class background in glasgow and i think ed's story is one you'll have seen you know his, his father died when he was very young and then his mother tragically died um when he was still quite young he was still at school um and he has a son who is who is disabled but ed is ed has taken all those challenges on and he knows what real life is about he knows what you know, the voters 
the public in this country go through in different ways, in different days. I'm sorry, and we're just a bit short on time, so if we can that move on. Um, something more current. For them. That's right. Uh, something more current. Your Jacob Rees-Mogg's new yeah, voting sure. system in Parliament. You've made your views pretty known about that so far, but do you want to just have some time here to... Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's farcical um, for several reasons. You, you know, we've spent uh, the best part of three months now telling people to, you know, stay safe, um, stay at home when you can, don't go to work if it's not necessary. Now, it's not necessary for us all to be at Westminster. We can work from home. We proved that before recess. We had debates, we did it all virtually, we voted virtually. And yet, Jacob Rees-Mogg is demanding that we all go in. Now, as several of my colleagues made clear yesterday, that is putting not just ourselves and our families, but everybody we meet when we're travelling to and from the Parliament, and all of the catering staff and the support staff, everybody in Parliament at a risk. And that, I think, is madness. When we have an option, which is safe, which is the hybrid Parliament, which we were using successfully before recess and we could use again. And the picture of us all lining up, I mean, how ridiculous was that? I'm on something else that's uh, current, what's your view on the protests happening in the UK and the US um, over the death of George Floyd and police brutality? Yeah, I've just... I've just been thinking about that, actually, and I wrote to the Prime Minister this week about it, saying that if the special relationship means anything, it means the opportunity to speak to your friends and say you're getting this wrong. Um, somebody needs, you know, we need our Prime Minister to speak to our closest ally and say that, you know, the, the intemperate language, the aggressive language, the use of uh, tear gas, the potential use of the military in the streets, that's not good for democracy. That is not where the country should be going. I actually um, was looking at the speech which um, Bob Kennedy made uh, just after the death of Martin Luther King. He made a speech um, which is um, credited with calming the situation in Indianapolis because there were 60 cities where there were riots immediately afterwards. And he said then, what we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence or lawlessness, but love and wisdom and compassion towards one another and a feeling of justice towards those who still suffer with their country, whether they be white or they be black. Now, that speaks perfectly to the situation we have at the moment in the States. Do you think the US is institutionally racist? I think um, we have to accept that both the US and this country still still have. I mean, we should not look at the US and say, oh, yes, but we don't have that problem. Yes, we do. We, you know... We have, got, um, we have got racism in this country and we have to clamp out on it. And the minute we start saying, well, of course, we, we don't have systemic racism, we don't have any problems, is exactly when we will have and they will, if you like, um, they, they will overwhelm us potentially. And I think in America, we are seeing that they have a serious, serious problem and they have to address it. Um, Martin Luther King said that writing is is the refuge of the, the voiceless that people turn people who are voiceless and unheard turn to rioting and that's what you've got in america and that's what we're beginning to see here as well and if you're going to stop it the only way to stop it the only way to discourage it 
is to ensure that the people who feel unheard have a voice and are listened to. Christine Jardine, thanks for taking your time to speak to me. You're very welcome. It's been lovely talking to you. Now, trade is going to be affected by COVID-19 um, pretty badly, it's safe to say. Joining us to talk about this is James Wells, former head of UK trade and business prices at the Office for National Statistics. Now, I should tell you that James did used to be an MEP for the Brexit party, so just bear that in mind when listening to his responses. James, pleasure to have you with us. Uh, pleasure to be here. Obviously, you have some expertise in trade, um, having that had that role at the ONS. Um, this is really simplistic, but on a scale of 1 to 10, how bad would you say global trade could be affected as a result of the pandemic? On a scale of 1 to 10, what would 10 being bad? 10 being bad, yeah. 10 being bad, I'd say that um, actually already it's probably been sort of a 9 or a 10. Um, mm. You know, if you look at the Bank of England's um, forecast, for GDP um, in the UK, uh, we're going to see the biggest contraction since 1706. And, you know, you multiply that across the world, because this isn't just a UK phenomenon, this is a global phenomenon. And, um, you know, you've seen whole sectors closed down by this. Um, it's quite early in terms of actually getting trade data in, but if you look at the later data, the Office for National Statistics mm. um, for March, um, you can see that exports, UK exports, are down 16% for total trade. Mm. Um, and, you know, when you bear in mind that actually that was quite early on in the pandemic, um, I think what we're going to see in April and May is going to be pretty bad. Um, yeah. So I think already, you know, it's, it's already been bad. Mm. Well, in early April, the WTO published a report saying that in an optimistic scenario, the global trade growth rate could plunge around 13%. In a pessimistic scenario, that could be as much as 32%. Do you think it could be this bad or worse? I think the, the WTO are right to, um, to publish different scenarios and quite wide-ranging scenarios because actually there is so much uncertainty out there. Um, obviously the pandemic, you know, we, is there going to be a second wave, for example, in, in winter? But also there's an, a number of other factors as well that, that just add so much uncertainty. But yeah, sure, I think it could get even worse than 32%, particularly when you consider in sort of secondary factors that are impacting global trade. So if you look towards the end of last year, global trade was already slowing uh, back in 2019. You know, we, we've got a global trade war going on between two superpowers, the US and China. Mm. And one of the things this pandemic has done is it's raised um, tensions between different countries around the world. So, you know, I don't think it's any, any secret that um, it's aggravated di already difficult relationship between China and the US. Mm. Other um, countries are being dragged into it as well. So... Um, you know, Australia, for example, have called for a global investigation um, into the origin of the virus and, and, and how the WHO dealt with it and also China's involvement and allegations of cover-ups and all of mm. that. And um, in retaliation to that, um, China has slapped, um, I think, it's 74% tariffs on imports of barley from Australia. Mm. And... You know, it's not even Australia and, and, and the US. If you look at the West 
um, countries in the West overall. I think there's a lot of countries now that are re-evaluating um, looking um, at re-evaluating re their relationship with China, particularly when it comes to products and services that are critical for national infrastructure, um, such as pharmaceuticals and other um, chemicals and, and in certain industrial components as well. So I think mm. over the next one to two years, you're going to see um, certainly um, countries changing their trade with China and that is going to have an impact overall um, on how quickly um, global trade recovers. Mm. Well this pandemic could change our relationship with China, um, you know Nigel Farage has been very vocal about it. Uh, this is obviously an opinion point as opposed to you informing, but do you agree we should rely less on China? Yeah, it's a difficult question, isn't it? I think, yes, definitely. But I think that it's more nuanced than it's not a binary thing. Um, you know, China is a superpower and clearly a very, very important global player. We can't just simply turn our back on China and we shouldn't try to do that anyway. You know, China is far mm. too important. Um, but... I think there is a question there about, um, about, again, particularly with sensitive goods and services, how we should be treating China. And I know there was a report recently from the Henry Jackson Society um, identifying um, hundreds of products which are critical to the UK's national security. Um, and I know that 20 or so um, Tory MPs have written to the Trade Secretary, um, basically calling for a change to the trade bill that's going through Parliament at the moment. Mm. Um, and essentially, basically saying that we should be pulling back um, on imports um, for products that are critical um, for, for the UK. And, and, and I guess that includes as well um, you know, Huawei has been going on, the row over that, you know, whether we should mm. be allowing um, a Chinese company like Huawei to be um, helping to build... Yeah. A lot of opposition to that in the Tory party as well as other parties. Yeah, and it, again, like I said, I don't think we should be pulling back on our relationship overall with China, but we should we should be questioning which products and services we allow China to... or we get, we're so dependent on China for... Um, particularly because I think, you know, the way that China has behaved, um, I think um, at minimum there are big questions uh, about how Chinese behaved. But I think, you know, if you want to be more cynical, then I, 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 I think there's some real difficult questions to be asked about China, how it dealt with the coronavirus, um, you know, allegations of cover-ups. Uh, um, you know, I guess one who actually think that, you know, that this is a man-made virus which has been released from China labs. So I'm not no. saying that, but I think there are big questions um, that we should be asking and, and, and looking about and reevaluating our relationship with China. Yeah. Mm, um, this isn't strictly on trade. And again, it's kind of an opinion one. But um, how would you rate the government's response in terms of businesses and the self-employed? Do you think it was good? Do you think it was bad? Or is it not a binary choice that you can? 
I think, you know, and I, I will frame this answer um, in context, you know, this is unprecedented, this um, pandemic. Um, it would normally, I mean, I've worked in the civil service for years. In terms of getting a national programme to deal with, um, you know, economic um, events in society, this would normally take years of planning in the civil service of designing these um these schemes and then getting them up and running. So the fact that the government has acted so quickly, um, both in designing the schemes and then getting them up and running, I, I, I think you know, that is a huge achievement. So I think to expect that they were gonna be perfect is, is unreasonable actually. Um, and they're not perfect. You know, if you look at the furlough scheme, for example, um, I think there was a lot of criticism of the fact that it was a binary choice for employers. You either employed someone full-time or you furlough them um, full-time. And I think that was a mistake because I think there was an awful lot of companies actually that would probably have um, cut down on their activity but not closed down in, in entirety. But actually they were forced to um, because they couldn't afford to um, have the staff um, on full-time. Um, the, to be fair to the government, they have acknowledged this, and I think from August the 1st, the furlough scheme can be applied to part-time workers now as well. So again, you know, the government has yeah. acknowledged where it's gone wrong and it's, and it's put in place measures to rectify that. Um, in terms of self-employed, um, I guess the criticism that, that the government was quite slow to act, but I think that it has acted now and I think what it's done is pretty good. It's not perfect. Um, you know, I'm starting a business myself, um, which I launched at the end of last year. Um, but because I don't have accounts going back over the last few years, obviously I can't apply to the scheme. So there will be, um, there will always be people that fall through the net. Um, and whilst that is, you know, that's, that's, that's really unfortunate for those, those people, um, it's, it's nigh impossible to come up with a scheme that's perfect in the time that the government's had. So to sum up, I, I think the government's done a pretty good job actually um, and, um, on doing the right thing by people. You know, it's asked people to, to stay indoors and not go to work. And so I think that it's right that the government should support the economy and support households. And I think it's done a pretty good job actually overall. Mm. Well, James, it's been fascinating to hear what you have to say. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure to have you on. Okay, brilliant. Thank you, Freddie. And well, that pretty much sums it up for this week. Uh, we were meant to have Lauren Kelly on now. She had to postpone to next week, but we will be speaking to her next week. Never fear. Obviously, I'm new to this. I'm new to presenting. I'm new to interviewing. So all feedback from anyone is greatly appreciated. My Twitter DMs are open at Fred D Journalism. Give me any feedback on the show, the technique I use to interview, the technique I use to present. I'd really love your feedback. That's it for this week. Cheers for listening. I'll see you next week.